Welcome to SLP Nerdcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Amy, and we appreciate you tuning in. In our podcast, we review and provide commentary on resources, literature, and we discuss issues related to the field of speech-language pathology. You can use this podcast for ASHA CEUs. Visit our website for other courses, including live courses, webinars, blog posts, and SLP masterclasses available for graduate-level credit. SLP Nerdcast is committed to improving continuing education in our field through affordable pricing and open access libraries. You can support our work by leaving a review, referring a friend, making a one-time contribution on our website, or subscribing. You can subscribe for as low as $7 a month and get access to monthly Q&A sessions, exclusive content, discounts, and a resource library of downloads, freebies, and printables. Want unlimited access to ASHA CEU courses? There's an affordable subscription for that too. For more information, visit us on our website or contact us anytime on Facebook, Instagram, or at info at slpnerdcast.com. We love hearing from our listeners and we can't wait to connect with you. And just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. SLP Nerdcast, its hosts and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during our episodes unless otherwise stated. We are not PhDs, but we do research our material. We do our best to provide a thorough review and a fair representation of each topic that we tackle. That being said, it's always likely that there's an article that we've missed or another perspective that we haven't shared. If you have something to add to the conversation, please email us. We love hearing from our listeners. We're so excited for today. We get to welcome Jeanette Washington. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you. I feel very welcome among you SLP nerds. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) Jeanette, you're here with us today to discuss dyslexia in schools. But before we get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'd love to take up some time talking about me. Again, as you all stated, my name is Jeanette Washington, and I work as an SLP and a software engineer. I love working within that intersection. It has inspired me to write the novel, Technical Difficulties, Why Dyslexic Narratives Matter in Tech. I am very fond of working with the language-based learning population and really creating different avenues for teachers to um, assess students that fall under that purview and for SOPs to learn more about their role as it relates to diagnosing those with dyslexia. So I teeter-totter between teachers and SOPs. With teachers, I like to help them to understand how they can include multi-sensory activities into their lessons. And with SOPs, I love to help them understand how they are a part of the intervention process, diagnosis, and so forth. So with that all said, I kind of do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That space is generally called like ed tech. So maybe we can call this the SOP tech space that I'm in. I like <laughs> I love that. I love the the perspective of, of having this knowledge of language development and dyslexia and also being a software engineer. Maybe it's just because I'm an A, I know I talked your ear off about this before we hit the record button, and maybe it's just because I'm an AAC person, but I, I think that is just so interesting that, that having that two perspectives, that must give you such a unique perspective in your clinical work. It certainly does. It provides me with a different lens in which I can view different scenarios. And I'll say that I stumbled upon software engineering as a means to to find something new. It was an exploratory stage I was in. I had gotten a divorce and I was like, I want to reinvent myself. So (laughs) I started really um, wanting to to find ways in which I could empower myself as a, you know, as a woman and software engineer kept kind of popping up on my radar. So I was like, well, let me give it a try. And in doing that, It definitely opened up some new doors that I didn't have opened for me previously. That's awesome. And you own your own practice now too, don't you? You do a lot of fancy things. Yes, um, my practice. (laughs) So I own a practice called Barely Articulating and it is in the Detroit metro area. So if you are in Michigan, come um, see me and I'll hook you up. Um, Right now I'm focusing on creating assessments and creating resources because I know how important it is 
to create valuable materials that everyone can use. You know, it's only so much you can tell people without providing some type of resource or material they can put their hands on. So that's what I'm focusing on in this season of my life. That's awesome. And well, in the show notes, everything that we mentioned today, any online resource or any, any article will all be listed in the show notes. So people can just have a little library of resources, you know, right in their phone and their podcast player. So, well, I, I just really want to keep talking to you, but I have to read these disclosures and learning objectives. So I'm going to try and get through that as, as quickly as possible. So Quickly, the learning objectives and our financial and non-financial disclosures. Sometimes people write in and ask me to skip this part. I can't. Asha makes me read it, so I will try and get through it as quickly as possible. Uh, learning objective number one, define how speech pathologists fit into the intervention process of dyslexia in the schools. Learning objective number two, provide a comprehensive list of, com- of the components of a dyslexia diagnosis. And learning objective number three, identify strategies, techniques, and programs that speech pathologists can implement to target phonemic awareness. Jeanette Washington's financial relationships. Jeanette is the owner of Barely Articulating and the author of Technical Difficulties, Why, Dyslexi- Why Dyslexic Narratives Matter in Tech. Jeanette's non-financial relationships. Jeanette is a member of the International Dyslexia Association and the Michigan Language, the Michigan Speech Language and Hearing Association. Kate, that's me, my financial disclosures. I'm the owner and founder of Grand Bois Therapy and Consulting LLC and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. My non-financial disclosures, I'm a member of ASHA SIG-12 and serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. I'm also a member of the Berkshire Association for Behavior Analysis and Therapy, MassABA, and the Association for Behavior Analysis International and the Corresponding Speech Pathology and Applied Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. This is Amy. My financial disclosures are that I'm an employee of a public school and a co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. And my non-financial disclosures are that I am a member of ASHA SIG-12. That's my dog. And I serve on the AAC advisory group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. Hi, Mabel. Hey, Mabel. So Jeanette, we're very excited. I want to get back into all the nitty gritty nerdy nerdiness. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about dyslexia, just to make sure everybody is on the same page. And then Mm -hmm. um, once we've covered that, maybe a little getting into that first learning objective, talking a little bit about the SLP's role. All right. So for those listening, I'm sure you've heard dyslexia being thrown out there in conversations casually, but you may not know what dyslexia is. So I am going to explain it to you in layman's terms. (laughs) Dyslexia is a learning disorder that affects your ability to read, spell, write, and speak. Essentially, it's considered a language-based learning disorder, and it's often annotated as SLD, Specific Learning Disorder, on IEPs. So a lot of times you will see SLD, and and you're probably wondering, what is this? It's likely that it is dyslexia. Um, dyslexia falls within the scope of speech language pathology because it is hallmarked with associating letters and sounds with um, just being unable to really associate them together. And your common indicators could include spelling, phonolatic, phonolet, phonolet, oh my gosh. <laughs> Phonetically, I want to say phonology so bad, you all. (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing a lot of work within the letters program, if you all are familiar. And so we're learning about phonology and phonological awareness. So it's it's really deep (laughs) on my brain. So what I want to say, though, is a common indicator of dyslexia would be if a student spells phonetically and inconsistently for that student to read and reread with little comprehension, difficulty putting thoughts into words and trouble with writing and copying. So those things you may see and those things are some indicators or as we are familiar with the phrase red flags. So I know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but I, I think it's an important point in, in that addressing dyslexia, intervening with dyslexia or other language learning differences is definitely within the scope of practice for a speech pathologist. But again, sort of revisiting that scope of practice as a larger circle, then there's scope of competence 
within a circle within that larger circle, right? So just because something's in your scope of practice doesn't mean it's in your scope of competence. And then within the smallest circle in that little diagram is your role in your workplace. And I, what I think is interesting about dyslexia is that we share, we share that with, with many other disciplines. And if you are a speech and language pathologist and you know that this intervening, you know, dyslexia interventions are part of your scope of practice, you feel competent in that area. You still may not feel that it's within your scope based on your work setting. If there are other professionals who have air quotes, nobody can see me. I'm doing air quotes who have been designated as the reading teacher or the person to intervene. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that gray area and, and how SLPs sort of navigate those three roles. I think that that was a great question and I love how you framed it for me. So I will say this, dyslexia is not recognized in every state. Current legislation is happening around making more states inclusive and aware of dyslexia and what it is. There are some states that just, you know, they don't even utilize that terminology. And with that in mind, you have to be very aware when you're going into the school districts and practicing with that terminology. So for instance, in the state of Texas, they have what is called a dyslexia therapist. So that person would be working within that scope of competency for dyslexic learners. And a speech language pathologist may not necessarily be the first person that they would go to if a teacher has a child that is presenting dyslexia or you know has those common indicators we talked about. Some districts prefer to use reading specialists almost exclusively. So they don't bring the speech and language pathologist into that conversation. So again, intervention is gonna differ based on the structure of the educational setting and the educational stakeholders and moreover within that state. So it's a little political when you I think about- no yeah, there's only about, I want to say it's somewhere between 40 and 50 states that recognize dyslexia. So it's, again, it's political and I've seen legislation that is impending. So I think changes are around the corner, but right now you, you kind of got to get in where you fit in. And so I think it's important for SLPs to learn about dyslexia and learn how to assess and and really be privy to dyslexia as a whole. In your setting, that may not be something that you are working specifically with, so. I had no idea that it varied so much by geographic, lo I mean, everything in our field varies by geographic location to a certain degree, but I think what's unique is that there are, there are different roles and like designated titles and roles and responsibilities yes. that vary so much depending on where you are. And, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about that from the family or client perspective, how confusing is that? So who do you yes. go to and how do you Very. advocate for yourself? Very confusing. I would say the first step would be to look at the International Dyslexia Association website and find your state. And once you find your state, you can start making some um, allowances and learning more about how dyslexia is perceived within your state. That'd be the first step. But yeah, it's, it's really confusing across the board. I've lived in a couple different states. That's why for me, it's like, oh my goodness, this is all over the place. Because when I lived in Mississippi, they were just enacting um, a law where every child by the age of five will get assessed for dyslexia, regardless if they show signs or not. Wow. That was something that the governor put in place because he was actually dyslexic. However, when I moved to Michigan, when I mentioned the word dyslexia, people were like going the other way. Like, oh no, I don't <laughs> want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. So it, it is going to definitely be based on where you are. And that can help you to determine what role you can potentially play. But I would still say that it's important to understand it so that if you have general questions, 
you know how to answer them, where to look and that sort of thing. Well, and it sounds like there's the bigger umbrella of what the what the regulation and sort of p- practices within your state. And then even mm-hmm. further, you know, zooming in from that is the piece about, okay, and then what is it in your school or in your yeah. workplace? Because that still may be different. That may be just a difference from district to district. And that's mm-hmm. just one more layer of confusion. <laughs> I have to agree. I've seen interventionists that worked with dyslexic students and I came in and they said oh we got it we don't need you said oh that's great because uh my caseload is already booming so if you got it (laughs) we'll let you get it seriously I mean think about how many other workplace variables have a negative impact on some of that collaboration we talk about collaboration on the show a lot Mm -hmm. and how interdisciplinary multidisciplinary transdisciplinary interventions are so important how service delivery models play into that in terms of being able to offer indirect service so that you have time written into your day to go collaborate with the dyslexia like the licensed dyslexia specialist or the literacy specialist or whoever has been quote designated as the point person I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, feelings, words of wisdom, guidance for the speech pathologist who is working in a setting who has a student on their caseload who has this diagnosis or has this written into their IEP, but feels a little lost in terms of their role on the team, in terms of how to support that student in terms of their language learning difference. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's a great question. I would say that shows and podcasts like like these are going to be super um, important to that SLP so that they can glean from these opportunities to learn more about dyslexia. I would also say that utilizing a screener beforehand could be helpful. And that way you get a better understanding of what it is that you need to be focused solely on. Because a lot of times we get these IEPs and and they're a little confusing. We're not quite sure um, what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, we see it as it's written for us in plain view, but again, that's not something that we're extremely familiar with. So it's definitely going to consist of some, some time really understanding what dyslexia is. There are some organizations that have some blueprints to help you all to understand exactly what it is that needs to be happening. But I will say, as it relates to a comprehensive, maybe like a list of components for a dyslexia diagnosis, you want to have that paper trail that consists of a family history documentation showing whether the the mother and father experience dyslexia or whether they struggled in that area because as we'll see dyslexia is hereditary so there is a large percentage and likelihood that if a mom or a dad may have had dyslexia then that child is going to present it as well you want to also be able to do a language assessment one of the the best assessments that i've found out there is going to be teals and it's a norm reference test that has been standardized to identify language and literacy disorders. And that is going to help kind of guide you as you create or modify those goals so that they can be attainable for that student. Oh, I'm sorry. Is the TEALS an acronym? Can you tell yes. us what the acronym is? I'm glad you oh, said Amy's that. Oh, Amy's writing me because that it's TILS, T-I-L-L-S, and I'm yes, having a problem. So TILS is T-I-L-L-S. And it's the test of integrated language and literacy skills. Perfect. It's, it's a pretty costly test. Uh, hopefully your district will have it or they'll <laughs> be able to provide it to you. But it is a great way to kind of dive into more of your familiarity with language and a little bit of literacy And I think it is helpful, again, when we're keeping that paper trail, we're going to that meeting and we're saying, hey, this is what I saw and this is the information I gathered. It really keeps you accountable. Yeah, I hope that answered your question. I know I'm kind of like here and there because I'm really thinking about 
my younger self and what I needed to know when I was going to those meetings and they were telling me like, this is what this child has and this is what you have to do. And mind you, these are people who were not very privy to the roles and responsibilities of a speech language pathologist. So that's why I'm kind of like a little here, a little there. So I'm thinking, what would I have benefited from learning? Well, and we t- we talk a lot on this podcast podcast just about how having a comprehensive assessment really informs your ability to develop a treatment plan and yes. generate your goals and objectives. So knowing, you know, where is a good starting point, I think is super helpful, whether you are, you know, somebody who's part of a team supporting a student who, you know, is presenting with dyslexia or whether you're the sole provider or, you know, depending upon your work environment and the state that you're living in, knowing a good starting point for an assessment, I think is really helpful. And I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit kind of just about that, even if you're kind of steering the ship in terms of the intervention, if you're a speech language pathologist who is supporting a student who has these learning needs, you know, what are some, what are some tips in terms of kind of collaborating if somebody else is the person who's kind of driving the intervention? That's a great question too. So I will say that we should consider the fact that every IEP must aim to enable the child to make progress. And these IEPs must be appropriately ambitious in the light of the child's disability. So when we go into these IEP meetings and we are mindful that we're here to provide our expertise in any way that's possible, and we're open to providing that feedback or being that echo then I think that makes it a little easier. I know at times we are collaborating with different um, experts, different professionals. It's almost like we're all butting heads because everybody wants to really assert themselves as the person that is driving the, (laughs) the ship. But I think in this instance, if the ship is already being drove and you've been asked to to be a passenger to make sure you are listening and um, taking notes as to what people's different feelings are, the parents, what are, are the parents being combative? Are they accepting of this diagnosis? Um, The other professionals around you, are they providing support that you think is equitable or are they pushing back a little bit. So I think being very observant is going to be important in that driving force as you are working alongside other professionals and not making it into an ego thing. You know, you're just listening. And at that point you're creating, and this may be helpful. I can't say that I've done this before, but almost like sketching a, like a a web So you can understand, okay, this is what I can bring to the table and this is what they're currently asking for or requiring. And you, because I know that multi-sensory teaching and instruction is helpful, even for us as we're learning as adults, um, multi-sensory instruction is so important. So consider taking some time and creating a, a, a mind map or a graphic organizer, just with a pencil or pen or whatever you have available at that meeting, it may be a crayon, <laughs> and understanding how you can connect within those different places or gaps that exist. I love that idea. I love that idea even <laughs> more broadly, just in terms of collaborative planning and working uh-huh. together with students. I think that that's a great idea. I also think, and we this is an, also a repeat theme, you mentioned the word ego. That Mm -hmm. is a critical piece, a critical barrier to effective Mm -hmm. collaboration. I think especially when you're talking about a a clinical area that is shared by so many disciplines and and could be specifically allocated to one discipline in particular if you're in a different state or school or workplace setting or what have you. So I, I think just for the sake of saying that again, I think that's a really important piece to consider. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to be egotistical. I think it's harder to just take a back seat or to say, you know what, I'm going to listen. What I've been finding, which is so uh, monumental as an adult, is if you just listen, 
and just be observant. There is so much that you can take in. I was born in February and I'm not really into astrology. My, my <laughs> family is though. They are always talking about it. So as a Pisces, I have like very intuitive nature about myself. And that's so important when I'm in these meetings, I'm leading with my um, intuition and I'm just sitting back and I'm watching body language, you know, I'm listening. And I think that that is so underrated. You know, we, we go into these meetings and we want to listen, I got my master's from here, or I am a PhD. I am very aware. Uh, listen, just take a seat, <laughs> take out a piece of paper and, and really start doodling some, some notes to yourself. And you would be surprised. You probably walk out of the meeting more informed than you would have if you went in there with your cap and gown on. <laughs> yes. them about where you <laughs> No one can see Amy and I just like aggressively head nodding and just being just all the high fives for that statement. I think, I think the, the power of listening is something that we don't do enough as, as humans. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is maybe cultural here in the States and it provides, it creates opportunities across everything you do clinically collaboration counseling i mean we're there's there are so many we wear so many hats as professionals and i think learning to listen is is just so critical so thank you so much for bringing that up too i mean that's so true are we listening to respond or are we listening to just you know grasp that information the kind of listening exactly yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so I wanted I want to zoom out a little bit and sort of think about the role of the SLP and sort of getting into the second learning objective about okay. what some of the comprehensive com what, what 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 some of the components of the dyslexia diagnosis are. So, you're an SLP in X school. The you have a student or students on your caseload with this written into their IEP. You are not the quote unquote dyslexia specialist in your workplace setting, you have some of these, I'm just sort of like painting the picture. You have this team environment, you have this collaborative piece. You started talking a little bit about assessment. And I think that's mm -hmm. so important because like Amy said, assessment and a thorough and comprehensive assessment will really drive our treatment. And I, I I'm, I'm wondering if you can make that connection there for us in terms of the components of the dyslexia diagnosis and what else and how you might look through that lens to frame a, a more comprehensive assessment. Okay. So generally there are about eight different things that need to be assessed. And we talked about that case study where you're getting that family history and you're understanding the familiar structure of that student. We also talked about that TILS, T-I-L-L-S, assessment that is going to focus on language and literacy. Uh, we also want to do an achievement test, an intelligence test, an articulation test, motor skills test, and social skills. Those are all going to be very helpful as we are looking at the whole child and understanding whether that child has dyslexia. That's a lot of tests. It, it is a lot of tests. That's why uh, it, it calls for a, a, all hands on deck <laughs> with it. <laughs> I mean, some, some common things that we evaluate could be, you know, word recognition, word autonomy, reading fluency, as you'll see within that TILS assessment, decoding, phonological awareness. As I was stumbling over that word earlier, all of those things kind of tie into place and we need to know whether they are existing at a milestone level or benchmark or whether they are very low for that student so we can make an accurate picture of dyslexia. And can you talk to us just a little bit more as we were saying before we started recording, Kate and I have like very, very minimal skills in this area. So this might be mm -hmm. a silly question, but what might you expect to see in going through like a comprehensive battery like that, that would make a, a dyslexia diagnosis more likely relative to something else accounting for the difficulties that we're seeing with the student? Okay. So the first thing I think of, usually those who have a dyslexia diagnosis are 
students that have a high or an average IQ. So that's something that sticks out to me plainly and is one of the things that makes dyslexia so unique because people automatically assume it is a disability and that that person has a lower IQ or a lower achievement score. So that in itself is going to be a red flag, so to speak, once you see that there. That's helpful. That makes sense. Is there anything else that sort of stands out that you're looking for? I think you mentioned, you know, you want to do an articulation assessment, mm-hmm. just thinking about those other assessments that people are doing, you know, mm-hmm. and that pattern that the SLP or, or kind of the, the comprehensive team, not just the SLP that everybody's really looking for in doing all of those different assessments. Mm-hmm. So one thing you'll notice is that when it comes to potentially articulation, that the dyslexic learner may have a hard time putting sounds together and blending. Um, They are going to have issues with segmenting and rhyming. Those are not going to be skills that come easily to those with dyslexia. So those, again, are going to be those um, indicators, red flags. And as you are going through the assessment process, you can kind of take a a note of that or put a check by that like hmm this child had issues with putting those thoughts that they had into words or they had issues with spelling or writing consistently so their writing samples are going to usually be very inconsistent because they will be writing listening to the words and writing those words there's a disruption there So they're hearing different sounds. They're not able to associate those sounds with letters. So those things will will help you to to make an informed uh, assessment overall. So I feel like with all of that, it just makes it that much clearer that it really is important to have all of these different components. It's, It's not something where if you suspect dyslexia, you do the tills and then you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think I stated this earlier, but it's important for people to do a potentially like a screener beforehand. A screener can help you so that you don't waste a ton of time. It's going to work smarter and not harder mm-hmm. for you because if you do like a quick little screener, there are online screeners that are, are pretty lucrative out there. And if you were to look for one, I would make sure that it had like a seal from the International Dyslexia Association so you knew that it was accredited. But you could do a quick screener, maybe 10 minutes, and that'll help you to see whether a further assessment is warranted. Or is, you know, is this something that the child just is, is struggling with? Or is this something that is, you know, probably age appropriate or or that sort of thing? So a screener is gonna help you rule out. And it can help you save time as well. Because if you do see those indicators in the screener and you say, okay, we need to get a team together and we need to make sure all eight of these components are assessed. So let's say you're a speech pathologist with, you know, a hundred students on your caseload. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. Un, you know, the reality <laughs> for a lot of our counterparts out there, yeah. unfortunately. Right. And you've identified this student as, you know, having some of these, as you say, red flags. You conduct the screener. It shows you that there is something to be concerned about and that you should move forward with a more comprehensive assessment. And this assessment that you described, this very thorough assessment that touches on all Mm -hmm. these diagnostic criteria is very thorough and I have to assume time consuming. Do you often see multiple members of a team helping to take on this assessment? Do you do you usually see speech pathologists referring out for some of these assessments or is this something that's best done maybe in the school in a team environment? I've definitely seen a lot more of the referring out, but again, that's going to fall under that purview of whether that is something that is acceptable at that particular school. Because if a referral is not, and then I, okay, so I'm going to pause that for a second and just tell you that uh, dyslexia assessment outside of school is going to be very expensive. One of my good friends just got one in the state of Michigan. She definitely paid over a thousand dollars to have her child assessed. Now, when you think about 
the average family, you know, there are going to be one or two children per household that might not be achievable. So that's something you want to make sure you consider. I would say that having someone in-house do it and having an SLP that can connect with her intervention team or with her colleagues and say, hey, can you assess for this? Because I'm going to be working to assess this um, would be a better and a more feasible option because a lot of universities do offer uh, assessments for dyslexia, but the waiting list can be up to a year. So again, this is coming from the knowledge I've gained in Michigan. I don't know whether there are easier ways in which you can do it in other states. When I lived in Mississippi, there were easier ways to get a full assessment and you didn't have to to really rely on an SOP too much because again, you had that dyslexia therapist and also the fact that there were laws in place where all students got assessed regardless. So if you're in a state like mine, you may want to double down and try to see what it is you can do in-house because if you make that referral, it, the parent may not be able to afford to get their child assessed. And then that's gonna cause potentially illiteracy. And then illiteracy can cause potential prison to pipeline issues. So it just keeps going and going and going. So yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that <laughs> because I, in another episode, um, we've, you know, we've talked about this before about that, you know, we as SLPs have a responsibility because there are really big impacts. If you have, you know, struggles with literacy, that has a really, it's a ripple effect across, you know, communities sometimes. So I think, I think that's a really good point. I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned it. And I also want to say, you know, if there are waiting lists and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a system, more of a systemic nationwide issue, just given the mm-hmm. shortage of at least speech pathologists right now. Mm-hmm you lose a year of instruction time. So, yes. you know, that's just waiting for an assessment. So I guess what I'm wondering is if there is an SLP listening who's really in that pickle and, and would like to do an assessment, but is realistically, restri- you know, restricted by time, the time problem, the, the time problem yeah. that we all have, are there ways to share the, you know, the burden of bringing in other, obviously advocating with your administration is a really huge yeah. piece of this in ter- terms of like altering your workplace setting to better serve your students. But that's a, you know, a, a mountain to climb for a lot of us. But are there other people on the school team who might be well suited to participate in that assessment so that the SLP doesn't need to carry that on their own? If yeah. Absolutely. That's a, um, a great like follow-up too. So I would say definitely lean in with that teacher, lean in potentially with the social worker or the counselor at the school, because they can assist with those social skills. Then you want to, let me see who else is usually in a traditional school. You, you usually would have like a social worker, a counselor, you'd have the teacher, of course, and the SOP. So those are the primary, uh, pillars of a school. And I would say just lean in with those individuals. Also be intentional about the time you set, because if you have a large caseload, you don't want to build anxiety around this, or you don't want to become, well, what I I like to think of it, it's not really procrastination, but it's almost like, um, you, you know, you have something to do, but you really don't want to do it. So you kind of drag along but you don't want to obviously build that into your routine because that's not going to benefit the student, nor is it going to benefit you because you'll have this thing hanging over you that you have to do. So I would say be intentional about your time, even if that is setting aside 45 minutes every day to focus on that. Uh, and I know 45 minutes seems like, whew, because uh, time, that's, that's the issue. But just being intentional, because I think if you set aside I'll say at the lowest, 20 minutes per school day to kind of focus your energy into that assessment, then you'd likely be able to to cover more ground. And also do not be afraid to ask colleagues for assistance. You know, ask that teacher, say, hey, I know you have a lot on your plate, but we really got to get Johnny squared away so that he can have the tools he needs to succeed overall. So and if the SLP, this fictitious person who's in mm-hmm. my mind listening to <laughs> listening to this and we're describing this issue, 
He's a real person. <laughs> in terms, that probably is a real person. In terms of advocating with to create workplace change or advocating with the administration, are there resources out there that you can point someone to? To you know, a site you've already mentioned. I think the international associate the International Dyslexia Association website and how that might have some information about state law and state requirements. Mm-hmm. But are there other things that you would recommend an SLP bring to the table in terms of advocating for structural change? Yeah, it's it's very thoughtful. How do you fix the world, Jeanette? How do you fix all the problems? Where is that resource? (laughs) One step at a time, one step at a time. So what I would say, we do have the most powerful tools in the whole wide world at our fingertips, and that is our cell phones. So we want to make sure that we are using them in a deliberate way. And that may mean Googling decoding dyslexia or Googling, you know, International Dyslexia Association, or even Googling the Academy of Orson Gillingham to see what's out there because knowledge is power. And that's going to really help you move that dial. Once you understand the, the state like the the state's scope of things, then you can really move some mountains there. So I would say to to Google and see what you can really bring to the table. It would take five minutes to look at an article on decoding dyslexia or to be able to pull up some information about how the advocacy process works as a whole. All right, so you want to definitely make sure you are looking up some grassroots organizations that are really pivotal in that community. One that is nationwide is called Decoding Dyslexia, and that was created by some moms who found that their children were not being supported like they felt they should. So they created this outreach arm, and I would say looking at some of the work that they've done would be helpful because as we know, um, advocacy is not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a cookie-cutter situation where we can copy it and, and paste it here. So understanding the scope of dyslexia from your state standpoint, I think that's going to give you a lot of ammunition as you're moving forward because you want to know what the, the state has in place. And so you can start calling out those different laws. And, and letting people know. <laughs> and, and sound very important in your meeting. When you start quoting laws that you, <laughs> you get everyone's, everyone's like attention. 207, <laughs> it's state. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I quote. Exactly, exactly. No, you're right. Knowledge is power. I think that that's such a good, you know, something that we already know, you know, knowledge is power, but. I was just going to say, we don't want to give you all too much homework, but. You kind of got to do a little homework when it comes to this, just a little, just a little, little. just a little, (laughs) but if you're listening, presumably you're seeking out this information anyway, and now you're already doing homework. Yes. You're, you're, now you have So kudos to you. Yes. Dropping the breadcrumbs. (laughs) This is where you can learn more. And in the time that we have left, we need to get to our third learning objective. And I, I, I have to ask you a little bit about assistive technology because I'm just dying to, but I'm going to save that for the end. In terms of strategies and techniques that an SLP can implement to target phonemic awareness. So again, painting that picture, you're, you know, Jane SLP in the schools, you've got, you have a time problem, you've done the screener, you pulled in all the resources at school to complete this fabulous comprehensive assessment that took no time and you've lost no instructional time because this is a fictitious scenario that we're just, you know, moving through it. And now it's time to start you know, writing your IEP goals or writing your, you know, writing up your treatment plans and really thinking about how to move forward. What are some of your like best recommendations for, for when you are in that place? Okay. So first I would say, as we know, phonemic awareness is the ability to identify and manipulate individual sounds as in spoken words. So we want to be conscious of activities that will heighten their or our students' ability to identify and manipulate 
those sounds. First one I can think of is tapping syllables or clapping syllables. You know, you can start uh, a therapy session with just doing that with their name. Hey, Jaden, it's so nice to see you. And, you know, maybe create a routine where he taps those syllables of his first and last name with you just in the intro of you and the, the student getting together. You can do syllable tallies. Uh, just, I think it's important to really be creative. You can do a syllable search in your speech room where you go around and sort words by syllables just from what the child sees around them. I think using our nursery rhymes and, and songs like Hickety Pickety are often fun. But when I look at ways in which we can notate that on an IEP, we can do goals like this student will be able to recognize and generate rhyming words in various structured activities with 80% accuracy. Maybe another goal could be the student will be able to identify initial, medial, and final phonemes in uh, high frequency words um, or grade appropriate words. So those are going to be good goals and uh, achievable goals for that student because, again, we want to make sure that the IEP's main aim, which is to enable to job, the child to make progress, and it must be appropriately ambitious. So I think that those would be some very ambitious goals, and those would also help you to utilize uh, hickety-pickety, like I said, the syllable search, or tapping those syllables. Well, and it, and it makes me kind of think back to those examples, make me think back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, where, okay, you might not be driving the ship, but there are a number of people on the ship, right? So if those are your goals and objectives in your speech and language session, I mean, it's it's not a huge jump to think about how ideally you're coordinating with other providers in the child school right. environment to work on those same things. If you're using a clapping, mm-hmm. clapping strategy, you're going to at least want to share that information with the teacher. And I, I think that some of these, I, I know that our third learning objective is about speech and language, but I also know that you work with educators. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about when you've seen effective use of some of those strategies and techniques across environments. Yes, please talk about Well, that. yeah. So I think that that's those, those aha moments that make what we do so much more important when uh, the child can do that carryover. And and really just seeing the teacher implementing things and strategies that you suggested and you utilizing some of those same resources uh, with the student when you're in their therapy session, that is just amazing. And it's also important to, to have that parent on board. So everybody is targeting those same areas of interest and that child will be seeing progress a lot sooner because they'll be using it across the board. So I would say working with the classroom teacher is going to be one of the most important, if not the important, the most important thing as you are building that carryover. Even coming into the teacher's class, what I've done on a lot of occasions is coming into the class and doing almost like a coaching session. Like I'm showing her what I do. And she's like, oh, well, I could do this too. And she's implementing it. And it's really just the best. I love to see it. Love to see it. And I, I, I know I, I, repeat myself every single episode that we record. Amy's laughing because she knows it. Uh, you know what I'm going to say. Do you want to say it? No, you can say it. You want me to say it? The importance of indirect service. The indirect service delivery model and having it written into your IEP so that you have time. You have time. You are doing a service to the student by even just by consulting, by observing, by teaching the teacher, by being a learner of watching the student in the classroom. I mean, all of those things are critical components to us being effective team members. And for some reason in our field, we get really stuck on, and I I think this is just a a field issue, not like a clinician issue, but we have this, you know, culturally, uh, 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 
I don't know, preference for this direct service and thinking that that's the best way to service our clients. And direct service doesn't necessarily mean pull out. It could mean push in. But the indirect service delivery model allows you for so much more flexibility. And I'm really on a soapbox here. I'm sorry. I just, I literally say it every single time. I need to make a t-shirt or something. I don't have to keep saying it. But the, the aha moment that you just said, how can you make that happen if you don't have indirect service written into your grid? Yeah, that's that's a good point you make. I will say that uh, I know you said Amy was laughing at you. <laughs> you say it all the time. But hey, sometimes I think hearing it more and more and repetition helps us to, to really acknowledge how important it is. And then we take that with us as we're in our schools, in our classrooms, so or our therapy rooms, so to speak. So in the time that we have left, you've done, you've, you've given us a really nice rundown of what SLPs can do to target phonemic awareness. I loved some of the suggestions that you just gave. I have to ask you how assistive technology fits into all of this. You know that I have to ask that question. Assistive technology. (laughs) So assistive technology is definitely going to be your friend. I will say that text to speech and speech to text software is some of like, okay, dyslexic adults and dyslexic high school students I work with, they absolutely cannot get enough of audibles or speech to text devices that helps them to still be able to communicate their thoughts around certain topics and have it written out for them like a dictation or for them to be able to listen to information and have it really come into their forefront and they're comprehending it in a way. So some tools that I have seen that uh, they love when it comes to text to speech are gonna be into words, natural readers, uh, RAS kids. And then when it comes to speech to text, you can look at Dragon Naturally Speaking and Talk Typer. Those are some that I have seen being used often. Now, when I travel internationally and work with individuals with dyslexia, I find that the smart pen is really important to them. And that's something that I wasn't really exposed to here. But when I went to Nigeria, I saw that they were using a lot of smart pens. And basically, it's like a ballpoint pen, and you use it as you're reading, and it dictates that information to you or speaks it to you and I was like oh that's really cool so I that's very cool (laughs) I want to yeah I want to actually get more of those I saw one in action and I was like oh my gosh so I have to get some so I can you know share them with all my SLP friends (laughs) other ones I would say uh color overlays have been helpful with reading let's see Timers and metronomes are said to be really, really helpful. I know for me, I use the Pomodoro technique and that's helpful for me. And I also think of those with ADHD that could potentially benefit from a timer and metronome. And if you all didn't know, okay, well, let me say, if you all didn't know, dyslexia and ADHD co-occur about 60% of the time. I did not know that. What did you want to My add? question was, what's the Pomodoro <laughs> technique? Oh, fun. Okay. So I learned that when I learned to code. It was so uh, helpful for me. So you work hard for like 25 minutes and you get that task done. And then, no, no, is it 20 minutes? I think it's 20 minutes. You work for about 20 minutes on a task and then you take a five minute break. And then you work for 20 minutes and you take a five minute break. So that's the Pomodoro technique. And it's really helpful because it helps you to stay anchored and laser focused for those 20 minutes. And then when you get that five minutes, you can say, whew, take a break, and then you jump back in for the 20 minutes. And so it really keeps the momentum with the project that you have going, whether it is studying for school or just working now that we're all working from home. <laughs> I can, you, you can see how that's helpful. I have to take many, many breaks, but to be able to focus on something for that 20 minutes that uh, you can get a lot done. 
I love that. I, I, and I, I see now when you mentioned, you know, using timers and metronomes, how that can mm-hmm. sort of be a support using that technique. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So if you're the SLP mm-hmm. and you're listening mm-hmm. to this and you're hygiene SLP who's listening and you, you know, have this situation and you're really interested in assistive technology, just again, bringing it back to the school environment, at what point would you start recommending an assistive technology eval or start trying to, I mean, just again, thinking about that third learning objective in terms of supporting our students with phonemic awareness, at what point do you sort of start to bring in some of that assistive technology? Honestly, I I really do it early on because we are working with digital natives. These students have, and these children have never lived in a time where technology was not easily available to them, you know? So with that in mind, they are using this on a regular basis regardless. So you just adding on a layer of support by saying, hey, when your son is using his tablet tonight, why don't you all look at this particular app or you know this software, this will help you do this and this will help to achieve that. I think I, I pretty much you know, put that out there within that first uh, couple weeks because they're already using the technology. It's easy for them to just implement whatever new strategy you have using that um, AT device. So, I mean, Again, these are digital natives we're talking about. And a lot of the assistive technology, especially if it's on that low or medium strand, it doesn't require training for. Now, if we're talking about something on that high tech end, then we would need to have a actual training done so that parents and everybody knows how to utilize it. But if it's at that low to medium strand of technology, then yeah, I, I usually tell them the door. I, I think also just th- how much technology has evolved in a relatively <laughs> short period of time. I mean, and you know this much more intimately than I do just kind of as a consumer, mm-hmm. but just thinking about things like, you know, I, I recently found out my public library lets me get free audiobooks and I can just check out free audiobooks. And this is my new favorite thing that I do. Is I just, is, is, you just it's like magic. Out? Yes. I've been using it for over a year. I I'm, love it. I'm in love with it. And I've like told everybody about like, did you know that you could get free books from the library? You can just listen to them. So I it, am obsessed with that. Yes, because it's like magic. <laughs> it's like magic. The library sends a book to your phone and you can just listen to it. So I think some of these mm-hmm. things too are just, if you happen to be dealing with people like me who didn't even know that was a thing, just giving people mm-hmm. exposure. This is technology that, like you said, you know, folks like us who are maybe a little bit older, we're not maybe digital natives, but the kids are. And so just giving us all awareness that this is just sort of accessibility to our culture now. And it's amazing. And yeah, yeah, it's the library. It's definitely amazing. I'm sorry. I was just, I'm so excited with you right now (laughs) because (laughs) this is my favorite thing. Like I can, we could do a podcast for the entire time and we talk about this. That's how exciting this is to me. (laughs) (laughs) My son, he's eight years old. We listen to audibles all the time. Like this is, this is a. Guys, I need to, I need (laughs) to get on this train. (laughs) It is free and it is magic and it comes to your phone. And that's, Mm -hmm. I obviously can't, can't. I I love that. I love it. But I th- I do think that you make it, not to bring us back to the boring stuff, but I, I think you make a really good point about <laughs> meeting the consum- meeting people where they are in terms of how they're consuming it. Because if they're already, if it's already a part of their daily life, then extending yeah. that into an educational learning environment is really not, it's really not that big of a deal. We're all using technology all the time anyway. I, I have learned so much from this. I am so grateful for your time. Before we wrap up, do you have any additional gems or words of wisdom that you want to leave our audience? OMG, you put me on the spot with that one. <laughs> well, if you if you had um, a message for the SLP out there in this mm-hmm. position that we are discussing, mm-hmm. what are your words? I would, I would say you are not alone. You simply need to just lean in a little harder 
Other people are asking the same questions. Other people are in the same position. So I hope that this isn't an isolating experience for you. You can certainly reach out to me. I have tons of resources. I am sending people resources all day long and, <laughs> and I don't mind it because that's, that's what we're here for. We're here to be resourceful to one another. So there you have it. <laughs> that, was, that was excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us in today's episode. As always, you can use this episode for ASHA CEUs. You can also potentially use this episode for other credits, depending on the regulations of your governing body. To determine if this episode will count towards professional development in your area of study, please check in with your governing bodies, or you can go to our website, www.slpnerdcast.com. All of the references and information listed throughout the course of the episode will be listed in the show notes. And as always, if you have any questions, please email us at info at slpnerdcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to welcome you back here again soon.